Today I will be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and they give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Good morning, church. Please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. I know we've completed our 40 days of prayer, but I know that's something your eyes have been accustomed to seeing as your leadership has asked you to please be a part of uh, the selection of the men that you got to hear, got, had an opportunity to hear about this morning who've been put before this church. And we're just asking you to continue that. We've not given a specific number of days until this process is completed. We're asking you to please continue to keep that on the forefront of your prayer list uh, across this family. Um, just, I'm so grateful for uh, the men that have uh, said yes and that they would be a part of this. There were others who said no, uh, that they didn't feel like this was a part of uh, God's plan for their life at this moment. There were others uh, who weren't nominated, uh, but maybe in the future. Uh, so there's so much going on here. There's so many emotions with uh, putting forth men's names. And we're trusting God with all of those. Amen? Just all of the emotions, all of that, to, for him to work out exactly who he wants helping us to lead this church for the next couple of years. So I'm just encouraging you, please continue to be in prayer about that. Um, we're going to be conclude, concluding our series called Lights Out today. And uh, for those of you who are visiting, uh, we hope that gives you a little bit of a heads up. But before we get started, I just have to tell you about what happened this week. Um, <laughs> I went to the break room in the office there to prepare a cup of coffee. And because the, the number of our staff is small, we don't ever make a pot of coffee. We've got one of those little Keurigs. How many of you have one of those? No, exactly. Okay, great. Most of you. Uh, we've got a little Keurig in our office. And so I went in and I put the water in the cylinder and I put the coffee in the little pod and uh, clicked go and went to the office. And anyway, started to um, do emails or some things that I was doing in my office. And you've done this before. You just kind of forgot that you went to make a cup of coffee. And so when it finally dawned on me, Adam... The millisecond that that hit my brain, you forgot your coffee, I also remembered I forgot to put the cup <laughs> under the spout. And so it's amazing how your body can react just so fast. And so I bolted into the to break room expecting to see just a mess all over the floor and there was nothing. I'm telling you the truth, nothing. And so I walked up to see if maybe I didn't turn it on, and sure enough, I had, because the light wasn't blinking anymore and it wasn't red. And then I looked in the little reservoir there that your coffee mug sits on. It was full to the brim with my cup of coffee. And I thought, oh, God, thank you for wise designers who knew boneheads like me would use their product. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I went out and shared what I just shared with you with our staff, and they just laughed and Danelle said, oh, I've done that before, and we all just laughed about that. And I went back, and, and there was Kelly. Kelly's one of our janitorial crew, and she had a trash bag that she was getting ready to put in the break room. And, and I said, well, let me get that coffee taken care of, and then you can put the, the trash bag in. And so sure enough, I went over, pulled out the, the, the trough there full of coffee, and poured it in the trash instead of the sink, which was six inches from there. And I went, oh, Kelly, I'm so sorry. I, I don't even know what I was thinking. And she said, oh, no worries, Mr. Sportsman. But you really do need a cup of coffee. <laughs> Isn't that great? 
Now, I tell you that because they let a ragamuffin like me stand up here and talk to you about God, which is kind of nuts. And it's also one of the reasons why I ask for prayer every time we get started. So would you mind? Father, we're all ragamuffins standing at the foot of the cross this morning, absolutely in need. Uh, forgive us whenever we act like we're righteous. You're the only one who makes us righteous. Your blood's the only thing that covers us and cleanses us and purifies us. Your spirit's the only thing that empowers us. If there's good in our life, it's because you're in our life. So we just stop this morning and say thank you. Thank you. Hear our prayers uh, this week and the next as we um, look towards these men whose names have been nominated. We need for you to confirm that. In the upcoming days, would you please do that? Thank you so very much for their willingness. Thank you so very much for um, the life of these men lived before, not just you, but us, uh, that would cause us to want to lift them up for leadership. Father, we realize we're not the only church that um, uh, is served by elders, not the only church who's uh, filled with ragamuffins in need of grace. We pray for uh, the Junction Road Church of Christ. We also pray for the Riverside Church of Christ this morning. Uh, we love them. And we're grateful to call them our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, so please continue to knit our hearts together so that we might act as one unified body to truly be a light on a hill for the entire world. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, amen. If you heard me express my humility in the story that I told a few moments ago, it's because I really do have that and I want it to leak out occasionally. Hopefully not just on purpose when I'm trying to talk to you or in front of you. I'm a very finite man, and I think it's a little presumptuous to try and express much for or about an infinite God without a great deal of trepidation, and there's a lot of it there this morning. I'd be the first to say that there are some things that we cannot know about this amazing, majestic God. They will always be a mystery, but I would also be quick to say he has made sure that there are some things we can know for certain. You see, if Jesus truly is God wrapped in human skin, and we believe that he is, amen? We really believe that Jesus is God wrapped in human skin. Now, he's even with God now, but he's in perfected skin, holy skin. At least it's how he left this earth. And it matters. All of that matters. The only reason why I can come to the conclusions that I'm going to share today is because of the reality of him coming in the flesh, the reality of him being crucified on the cross and that, that gift paid for my sin debt and the reality of his resurrection gave me the hope of a brand new eternal life possible, not just when I get to heaven, but beginning right now. I don't know if you've noticed this as we've been reading through 1 John, but there's this one little phrase that he repeats 36 times. We know. Would you say that with me? Here we go. We know, one more time, we know, not suppose, not speculate, not we think. No, 36 times Paul writes, we know. In fact, in the last nine verses that we're going to look at this morning, he'll say it six more times. And when we're done, I hope you'll see that when Jesus is not just a light in your life, but the light, your first light in your life, then truly we can be that light on a hill that we read just before I got up here this morning. Let's read the text from John. Here we go. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so you may know. 
you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us and we know that he hears us. Whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. Now I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death because there is a sin that does lead to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. See, all wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know anybody born of God doesn't continue in sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, who is authentic, who's the real deal. We are in him who is true by being in the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And all the church said, amen. Thus ends the book of 1 John. John closes with four things I want you to take home with this morning that you can be sure of. The first one is this one. I think it maybe this is the most important one. You can know your salvation settled. I'm not going to make a case for that. John's going to make the case for it. You can know your salvation's settled. And I, for one, am grateful that God took the time to make that clear for me. I don't want to just aim at heaven. I'd like to know it's mine, all right? I really would. And John's going to say to you this morning, you can know. Look at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. I'm so glad I didn't have to make that up. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so you can know that you have eternal life. When I was a boy, I was raised in a church that prided itself on knowing the answer to just about every question in the Bible or about the Bible. How Jesus is coming back, what a miracle is, how much water is needed for baptism. No matter what the question was, we had it figured out. Except for one question. Interesting, the one question we couldn't give an answer to was, do you know that you're saved and going to heaven? The answer I was taught was, well, we can't know that. We can only hope we've done enough. Answer sound familiar to anybody here? Yeah. Never was that more clear than when I heard men pray usually at the end of the service, and it went something like this, guard, guide, and direct us down through the uneven journeys of life, and I'm good with that part. Here's the part that caused me to struggle. And if we've been found faithful in the end, we pray that you'll grant us a home in heaven. The key phrase, phrase there being, if I've been found faithful, I cannot tell you how much insecurity that put in me about my salvation. Not just hearing it taught, but also hearing it prayed, over and over and over. And I just don't think that should be, not what we've just heard a while ago from John in chapter 5 and verse 13, because there's no gospel in that. There's no good news in if I've been found faithful, because I haven't been faithful. <laughs> I haven't and I won't be faithful completely. And so if my salvation, if, it, if heaven rests on my faithfulness, I'm not going. And you know what? I gotta, you're not either. I know you. Five years worth. You're not going. 
Romans says it in chapter 3 and verse 10. No one is faithful. No one is righteous. Not even one. And I'm glad. Not for not being faithful, but because it, my salvation doesn't rest on that. My salvation rests on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's what it rests on. Not what I do, but what he's done. And when I rest on that, I can rest in that. And that's what John's trying to teach this morning. Let me try to illustrate it this way. A reporter was trying to get a story from a very wealthy man in his community. So he approached him one morning and he said, tell me how you became wealthy. He said, well, when my wife and I were married, all we had over us was the roof that was over our head. Eh, maybe a shirt or two in the closet and a nickel. And I went out and I bought an apple and I shined that apple up and I sold that thing for 10 cents. Then I went and I got me two more apples, shined them up too, and then I sold them for 20 cents. Well, the reporter was starting to get a little bit giddy about this. Oh, this is going to be a great human interest story. And he said, well, well what would you do next? The guy said, well, my father-in-law died and he left me $20 million. <laughs> now, I tell you that story because that's how I know my salvation's secure. It's because I've been born into a family for which a great inheritance is waiting for me. I didn't earn it, but I am going to receive it because I've been adopted into that family. And so my eternal riches are because of my Father's gift, not because of my works. That's what Paul tries to say in Ephesians 2 and verse 8. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. That's what John wants us to know. Our salvation's been settled. Now, how much does he want us to know this? So much so that God would seal the deal himself. This is the consistent teaching of the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes this. When you heard the true teaching, the good news about your salvation, you believed in Christ. And in Christ, God put his special mark of ownership on you by giving you the Holy Spirit just like he promised. And this Holy Spirit is the guarantee that we will receive what God has promised for his people. A little side note here. Any church that teaches you that you do not receive personally the Holy Spirit just so happens to be the same churches that teach you you can't know if you have eternal life. The Bible makes it clear the two go together. Brother God wants us to be so sure that Jesus settled the most important question in our life, can I be saved, that he sends his Holy Spirit as a guarantee. John reminds us that we have experienced the only death of any significance we will ever experience when in some type of mode like this, whether it be a tank that's in a church building or a river or a bathtub where we come in contact with the death of Christ when we're baptized. That's the only death of any real significance you will ever experience. That's the only death that you ought to be really nervous about. And I, and I see us nervous about that. You know, you should be. It's a big step saying, I make Jesus Christ my Lord and I, I want to die today and allow him to birth me again into his family, to make me born again. Make me brand new. That, that's, that ought to be filled with some humility and trepidation. But once that's taken place and the sins are washed away because of that blood you come in contact with, that spirit moves in, you've been sealed, you're headed to heaven. You're headed to heaven. Our salvation is settled. Number two, you can know that your prayers get answered. I love both of these. Please know, you can be certain that your prayers are never an interruption to God. Never. 
He is an eager listener and he is a cheerful giver. Listen to verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what is asked of him. John speaks of two certainties here in this little text. Of hearing and having. And I just want to say, Sister John, remind us that we don't have to wonder ever if he hears us. We never have to compel him to pay attention. We never have to get put on hold. It, our prayers never go to voicemail. Isn't that great? No recording. We have the assurance, John's trying to say, that if we ask in line with God's will, that even when the answer is delayed, it does not mean that God's denied us. It's probably just a matter of timing. I use this illustration to illustrate that, especially with the season that's coming upon us. It's similar to when your kids are little, and they ask you for a certain something for Christmas. And John, um, you're kind of smiling when they ask you because it's already in the closet. Don't you love that? They don't get the gift yet, but they actually already have it. It just hasn't been placed in their presence. I think God does the same thing sometimes with our prayers. We ask for things, and he's already said yes, but he just hasn't given them to us yet. But it will be delivered in our life when it both benefits us most and the kingdom most. The more that I've walked with Jesus over these years, the more that he has shown me that prayer is not about changing his will to meet mine. It's about me changing my will to meet his. Isn't that how the Lord's Prayer starts? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't that how Jesus prayed right before he went to the cross? God, I really would rather this not happen. If there's any other plan B, I'm in. But not my will be done, your will be done. Even there, Jesus is bending his will to the Father's. There are some things John would ask you not to pray for. I tried to think, if I had a chance to go to the governor's office here in Texas and I was going to get a couple of minutes with him or if I had a chance to go to, to see maybe one of our senators or, or maybe even President Trump how would I feel about those moments that I was given to be in his presence I, I, I would want to know what, what the protocol was what, what things I should say what I should what, I, what should I do what, I, what should I shouldn't do alright do you ever think that way about prayer that we're approaching the creator of the universe and asking for a moment of his time for his focus in our life. And I did this week as I got to this text, as I got to John talking to us about this prayer about, come on, bring those prayers to God. He wants to hear from you. Well, there's some things that he'd just soon not be bothered with. Isn't that interesting? He's going to talk about that in this text this morning. We read about it pretty quickly a while ago. Let's see if we can slow down for just a minute. And so I'm going to ask for about seven minutes to have your full attention, okay? And maybe even some quiet prayers for the one who's talking. Because I need his favor to talk about this. And also need your focus to talk about this. And also need for you maybe to, to spend some time this week going a little bit deeper with this. John's going to illustrate what he means by saying here's a couple of things, or at least one thing you don't pray for. And he starts this way in verse 13. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. Let's not run past that one. If you see a brother or sister commit a sin that doesn't lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. Now, I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. 
There is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying that you should pray about that. Don't pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Here's the situation that I think John's describing here. The brother or sister has been caught up in some sin, and you're wondering, what do I do? The first thing the Scripture encourages all of us to do is you pray. Before you do anything, you talk to the Father about anything that you see going on in your life or someone else's life, John says you pray for them because there could be life in those prayers for your brother or sister unless they're involved in something that's going to lead to death. Don't pray about that because that's not God's will. You say, well, Jimmy, then what is this sin that leads to death? I've got some thoughts that I'm going to share with you, but I'm going to say this right up front, that when John's readers read his response in a church setting just like us, I think they finished walking away saying, thank you, that was helpful. Not, hmm, that's confusing. I think they knew exactly the distinction that he's trying to make here in this particular text. But I looked at a lot of scholars this week who are just as confused about it as I am. There's been some stuff lost between when these were first said and where we are now. And so I'm going to give you my best shot at this, having done some study this week. Here's a few thoughts to chew on. What is the sin unto death? Well, if you use the context of John's letter, that's always one of the best places to start when you're trying to figure out what's the Bible mean here. Start in the closest context, particularly this letter of John, all right? If we'll just use his letter, it's two things. False teaching about the identity of Jesus. That's a sin that leads to death. And the false embracing of sin, thinking that you have the blessing of God. That's a sin that leads to death. The false embracing of sin, thinking you have the blessing of God. The false teaching about the identity of Christ. Let me talk quickly about those two. The biblical doctrine of the coming of Jesus in the flesh is absolutely critical for the Christian faith. Jesus coming in the flesh is absolutely critical. We've heard since July as a cornerstone marker of the Christian faith. And it is for a couple of reasons. Number one, it validates the importance of this body of ours. It matters what you do with this body. And especially if you've given this body to Jesus Christ, he'd like to be talked to about how you use it all the time. Jesus coming in the flesh confirms and validates our bodies are important. But also, it's the only way he could be made like us in every respect, which the Hebrew writer says was absolutely essential in him becoming the atoning sacrifice for us so that truly when he was on that cross, he was paying the sin debt that I owed. It's absolutely essential to that. Now that's what the scripture tells us about it. For some in John's day, however, believing otherwise opened up a door for them to do whatever they wanted with those bodies. <laughs> and since God wasn't concerned about what they did with their bodies, they didn't actually have to worry about holiness, righteousness. Now I could have some great God thoughts, but bad behaviors and it really wouldn't matter. And people were actually teaching that in John's church. And it split that church right down the middle like it would anywhere. John said specifically, that's devilish thinking. I'm not going to go back and revisit all that, but he says, that's satanic thinking. You honor God with your mind and your body. You honor God with your beliefs and your behavior, John said. Or you walk in darkness. You're a child of the devil, not a child of Christ. And if you walk in darkness long enough, you will die. That's what John's trying to say. So that's why we start all the time with saying, where are your feet pointed today? 
Are they pointed toward Christ and His righteousness? Are they pointed anywhere else other than that? And if you start to move anywhere else, you start to move away from Christ towards darkness. And if you walk down that path of darkness long enough, it ends in the same ditch that Satan's going to end up in, the book of Revelation tells us, which is eternal damnation and fire. We don't want anyone to go there. So in the Old Testament, the wisest man in the world warns this way. Whoever remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed. The Hebrew writer warns those of us in the New Covenant this way. If we deliberately go on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no further sacrifice remains for that sin, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume all adversaries. And someone says, well, I don't want to do that. And God says, good. Stay away from it all. Stay away from the greed, stay away from the envy, stay away from the gossip and the murder and the adultery and the lust and the lies and the drunkenness and the stealing. Now, for a group of people in John's day, that didn't matter. And so they were going to hell in a handbasket. They were on a path of destruction and death that no prayer could turn around. John says, if you see someone in your body starting to head down that path because of their greed or their envy, their gossip, first you pray for them. Then Matthew 18 says, you go talk to them. <laughs> hey, brother, have you noticed where your toes are pointed? Have you noticed a couple of steps you've taken in this direction? Or am I missing something here? Let's, let's talk about this because this matters. You take many more steps and all of a sudden this isn't just a walk. It becomes a way of life that leads to death. Now, if that brother won't listen to you, you love him enough that you go get another brother and make sure that y'all are on the same track. Maybe he's, you're not seeing this thing right. And if y'all are, then y'all both encourage him. You don't want to go there. And if they won't listen, you take it to the church. You have the whole body go love on them. Remember, we did this four years ago. With a brother who was actually believing that he could act in a way that was 180 degrees from what God wanted and call it blessing. And so we encourage you, go talk to this brother after we prayed about it, after we talked to him one-on-one, -on -one, after we got some other brothers to go, then we brought it to the church. Now that doesn't happen every week, thank you God. But he says occasionally it has to happen. Because people can be that rebellious and sin matters that much. But that's the extremes. What John's saying here. Please start with prayer. Please start with prayer. Because those prayers, when you see a brother or sister messing with some sin, could bring some life to them. If it doesn't, then you take some other measures to go with that. We know God wants us to pray for each other. When we're struggling in obedience, if we see a brother or sister trapped in sin, because that's not just an opportunity for us to go gossip about them. It's an opportunity for us to go to the Father in prayer for them. He doesn't want us talking about our brother. He wants us to talk to the Father for our brother. That's what he's trying to get to here. That's what he's trying to emphasize. Because that prayer may deliver him, but it will also protect me from having critical judgment about the life that I'm trying to lead in my following of Jesus Christ. More than that, here's what John goes on to say. Your prayers keep you connected to the resistant movement of this kingdom. And that's what you're in if you haven't been reminded of it lately. We're in a resistance movement. Have you noticed? 
what Christ is calling us to and what the world is trying to, to pull us towards, two different things. And prayer is an indispensable piece of spiritual warfare, not to let Satan deceive us and lead us out of here. That's what Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13 when he invites us on a daily basis to say, lead us away from temptation and please, if we're in it, deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Sister, our prayers for ourselves and each other are powerful in helping us avoid the devil's ambushes and will enable us to escape when we get caught up in one. That's what John's trying to teach here. Jesus didn't just teach that, he, he did it. The night before he went to the cross, in John chapter 17 and verse 5, we get to hear one of his prayers. Lord, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, his disciples, but I am asking you to keep them safe from the evil one. Now why would Jesus do that? Because we can be sure about one thing. The devil that he was about to vanquish at the cross in the tomb was about to be handled but that devil was not going to vanish. He was going to do everything he could to hurt you and me. And so Jesus prayed for not only for those disciples, but for us as well. People ask me all the time, how's it going at KCC? How's the work there? And I always tell them the same thing, wonderfully challenging. You're thinking, well, I wish you'd say better. Well, no, it's really just the truth. Wonderful in the sense that I get to see on a daily basis the power of forgiveness and the power of an empty tomb in people's lives. I get to see that, and it's wonderful. And then it's incredibly challenging. When I get to see that Satan is still alive, and he's still stealing, and he's still killing, and he's still destroying. So if I have to be honest, that's what I tell him. It's wonderfully challenging. There's one thing that John says you can be sure of, though, in regards to this enemy. Our enemy will not prevail. Amen? He may be on the loose, but he is destined to be destroyed forever. In verse 18, John says, We know that anyone born of God does not continue in sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. Please hear me. Jesus did not go to the cross to die to lose people. He didn't. He went there to deliver people, to set people free. So we know that maybe Satan's ultimate defeat is still sometime in the future. His absolute, complete, total annihilations in the future. But John's saying right now, because of what's happened at the cross and the empty tomb, we can live in the resurrection triumph and victory that Jesus has made possible. His kingdom has come into this world, John says. And Satan's claim to this world's real but it's illegitimate it, it's real you can look all around and you can see fingerprints and, and and parts of his influence every single place you tend to look man this week we've been taken back down through Sutherland's journey to a funerals after funeral after funeral because of the tragedy that happened last week we just go oh my goodness wickedness is still very much alive vanquished but not vanished look anywhere in the globe look in your own family most likely, and you can see that that's true. John does not want us to be discouraged by that. He wants us to know that our enemy will not prevail, and he doesn't want us to have the excuse by thinking we can't prevail over any sin that we're struggling with. 
This has to infuriate God because we can read these texts and we don't get near as upset about them as some other texts that we fought and fussed over. He does not want to hear us say, well, I, I just can't help myself. Oh, yes, you can because you've been born again. Well, this is just the way I was. I was born this way. Oh, yes, you can because you've been born again. Because we're under new authority. I don't know how you understand that, but this helps me a little bit. I watch basketball very seldom. One player, though, will forever stand that in my mind. I know you're probably thinking Michael Jordan, but really it's not. It's Shaquille O'Neal. I'm not saying he was the best basketball player, but how in the world could you ever forget that guy? He's huge. One of the largest men to ever play the game, ever. And he dominated at every level that he ever played. High school, college, sports, pro sport, you name it. Did he play college? Okay, there we go. I just thought, I didn't look that one up. They're not, they're, someone's going to say, so he didn't go to college. But I remember this scene. It happened on the late night news when I was watching some ESPN highlights. Shaq had played for the Los Angeles Lakers for years, many of you know. And in his prime, <laughs> even though he was a giant of a man and he could score bucket after bucket underneath the bucket, he was terrible at the free throw line. And so one of the biggest schemes was to hack him to get him to the free throw line because he was going to miss like 80% of his free. It was terrible. The guy just threw up these rocks all the time, kind of like Zastro does. Have you ever played basketball with Zastro? I just needed some tension release there, brother, see if you were awake. No, but this guy's terrible at the free throw line, and so they'd hack him. Well, the night that I'm watching on ESPN, he actually took a punch at somebody. For three quarters, they had been working on him, and finally he had had enough. And he took a swing at this one guy, and as soon as he did, this little guy in pinstripes came up and stuck his finger in his belly button. <laughs> Said, you're out of here. I think he was actually holding his finger up to touch his belly button. You're out of here, buddy. Now, who had more power? Shaq had more physical power. Shaq had more financial power. Shaq had more influential power. He could have taken his hand and hit that ref on the top of the head, and he just would have been another mark on the floor. But the ref had more authority, and so he walked off that court. What's greater, power or authority? God came this morning to remind you authority. God has both, greater power and greater authority. And by his authority, hear the word of the Lord, church. Our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. Our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that the sin might lose its power in our lives. Lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin because when we died with Christ, we were set free for the power of sin. So you should consider yourselves dead to sin and able to live for the glory of God through Jesus Christ. That's your birthright as a child of God. So sister, no more of this talk that oh, I was just born this way. I'm sorry, I just, I just can't seem to... No. Now, with the Spirit's power and the church's help, you can overcome anything. You can. John writes that we might know that the world is still under the influence of the evil one. And I hate the reminders that we see everywhere again in the world and in our families. But we also know that our lives are marked by a light within us that's giving testimony to the truth that there is a new ruler that's coming in this world. That when his throne is ultimately established, there will be nothing but purity and goodness and love in this place. His reign's already started, you know. Need some evidence? I mentioned last August at the Global Leadership Conference, we were blessed to hear from one of the survivors of the um, 
awful Rwandan genocide that took place back in 1994. Let me remind you, a million people died in 100 days. Just a little war between two tribes. And a million people died in 100 days. My heart was reawakened to that tragedy this week when a story came across my desk. It's about two young people, the two that you see there sitting on the bicycle. How they came to be on that bicycle was because of a very dark time in our world. The young man named that you're looking at there, his name is Mark. He's from the Tutsi tribe. The young woman that you're looking at is Felicita. She's a member of the Hutu tribe. The Tutsis declared war on her tribe. And the young man in that picture killed 15 people in her village. Her father, her brother, and her uncle were a part of those 15 people. And they could have killed her, but she found some bushes to hide in effectively. Hid so well they couldn't find her. So Mark spent seven years after that war came to an end in prison for his crimes, and deservedly so. But many of these people in prison, because of that war, were boys. Much of that killing took place because of boys being not just encouraged, demanded to do so. So when Mark was released, about 50,000 similar men like himself were serving similar sentences. They were also released. So what do you do? When a nation is faced with a dawning challenge about asking, how are we going to rebuild from something like this? It's so completely out of control. The, the evil that was present in that nation at that time was so thick, you could cut it with a knife. No pun intended. Well, they set up reconciliation and healing meetings. And one was led, believe it or not, by Felicitas' brother. And Mark went to that meeting. And at that meeting, Mark gave his life to Christ. And in that evangelistic service, he came to the knowledge of what he needed to do next. He needed to go back to the village where he killed all those people. And he would ask for their forgiveness and throw himself at their mercy. He knew that could cost him his life, but he knew that's what he needed to do. So he went back, and sure enough, everybody forgave him, except Felicita. She was so filled with anger, she wanted him to die. But her ambassador of grace, her older brother, kept telling her, you need to forgive this man. And that became a reality one day when Mark personally got down in front of her on his knees, confessed all of his crimes, and he asked for her mercy. And she said she placed her hand on Mark and she said, I forgive you. I forgive you. And Mark said when she did, it was like a holy shower just came over me and it cleansed me. And she said, that after 10 straight years of nightmares and headaches every day, all of a sudden they stopped. That's what's breaking into our world. And it will come with sacrifice just like it did for these two. And it will come with humility. And it will come with the need of forgiveness and reconciliation. And God saying, would you be a part of that? The evil one doesn't stand a chance. There's one more thing that he wants us to know that we can be assured of. Verse 20 says, we know that the Son of God has come. He's given understanding so that we can know the true God. Now we are in God because we're in the Son. Jesus is the only true God. He is eternal life. There's a reason that we can know that our salvation is settled. There's a reason that we can know our prayers are heard. There's a reason that we can know the enemy can't and will not destroy us. Because we know that Jesus is the real deal. He's authentic. That's number four. 
My understanding of Jesus is authentic. John's trying his best to make sure of it, and so are this, so is this eldership, and so, so is this preacher, because we want you to know we serve the living God, not false gods, which is why John has to end this chapter with that little phrase that, that kind of hung out, it seemed like, by itself. Don't let yourself get caught up with idols. You see, if there's a true God, there's got to be false gods, right? There's no need to even say that then. And there are false gods. We've, we've bowed down to some of them, haven't we? Whenever you're in trouble, whenever you're struggling, whenever you're hopeless and you, you need to turn to something, what is it you turn to? Is it the pantry? Is it the Xbox? Is it the liquor cabinet? What is it that you turn to for your momentary salvation and the direction of your next steps? God's saying, could I be that person? Could I be a part of that focus? Because if you'll let me be your first light, I promise you, through you, I will be light to the world. That's really his goal in this writing of his book. That's why the name of the series is Lights Out. Because, yes, Jesus wants to come into our life, and, yes, he wants to make a difference, and he wants to save us. But he wants that light out. And the only way that it comes out is not when you just dabble in Jesus on Sunday mornings or in a ladies' Bible class. No, it's when you make him the first light of your life. And that light will shine out and make a mark and felicita difference in our world. I saw you all ago respond to that story. God wants to use your story to make other stories like that. Will you let him? Will you truly live lights out? For Jesus, we're going to stand and sing this song that says, you're my all in all. I want to know if that's true. Before we start singing it, is he really? If he hasn't been and you know that, come find one of our elders and we'll help you start over. Draw a line in the sand and say, you haven't been my all in all, but I'd like for you to be. And if you've never placed him as that first light in your life, there's been other things you've turned to, other lights, many lights, but not the light, the way, the truth, and the light. And you want to make him Lord of your life today? We're going to see you buried in Christ and raised in the newness of his spirit. If you'll, if you'll just say yes. Now is your time to do that. Let's stand, church. Let's praise him.